0: Al Jazeera Podcast.
1: No longer the stuff of science fiction. Incredible advances in artificial intelligence or AI are now a reality. As the technology develops, we'll experience more of its impact on our lives. So what are the benefits and the risks? And can regulators keep pace with developers? I'm Laura Kyle and you're listening to the Inside Story podcast where we dissect, analyze and help define major global stories. Let's welcome our guests now. They're all real. In Cambridge, we have Henry Ida, an expert on generative artificial intelligence and deep fake technology. He's an advisor to organizations like Meta. In Edinburgh is Lillian Edwards, Professor of Law, Innovation and Society at Newcastle University. And in Los Angeles, we have Ramesh Srevasan, Professor of Media and Information Studies at the University of California and founder of the research group Digital Cultures Lab. Very warm welcome to all of you. Henry, let's start with the two broad schools of thought that we come to when we look at AI. Firstly, that it has a huge potential to transform our lives for the better. Secondly, that it threatens our very existence. Which one do you subscribe to?
0: Well, I'd like to think that we don't have to kind of choose these extreme poles in some respects. Um, I think it's with most things, these, um, these applications um, exist on a spectrum and there are things that we can simultaneously be very excited about in the context of things like productivity education healthcare, and the like whilst also acknowledging the very real risks that are posed to things like election integrity um women's rights if we're talking about image abuse using things like deep fakes and of course uh, cyber security scams impersonation and so on so I think for me, the narrative often is a bit too sensational on mm. one side or the other. It's either kind of AI Zoom or AI Doom. And um, for me, it's about kind of mapping the landscape as it is, recognising the threats as they exist and tackling them, whilst also acknowledging that there is a lot of positive potential. Um, and at the moment, I think we are really kind of existing in this quite polarised debate um, where we need a little bit more of the understanding of the kind of the dual use nature of AI.
1: Okay. Ramesh, how are you already seeing AI impact our world?
2: Yeah, I mean, there are very significant impacts that these types of AI systems, so-called generative AI systems, are already having, because I think it's very important we all note how these systems work. They mimic human expression and human behavior. They do so in absolutely remarkable ways because we have such powerful pattern computing, pattern storing Pattern matching technologies, right? Because the cost of storing data and essentially datafying everything has become so much cheaper, and mm-hmm. we've built machines to induce those patterns. So that's very helpful in the context of things like environmental monitoring, or as your story just indicated, uh, questions around science and medicine. But as far as sort of doom scenarios or my concerns, which are, you know, corporate overreach, uh, bias issues, algorithmic violence issues, all of these are things that we're treating as inevitable, even though we're constructing the inevitable. So I think we need to ask a bigger question, which is what should we not datafy? What should we not you know, let loose to calculating machines and who truly has power, governance and oversight over systems of all kinds that are increasingly taking over our world and our planet.
1: Okay. And Lillian, would you agree with that? Is data one of the key areas of concern here? What are you focused on most when you're looking at the future of AI?
3: Um, yeah, I think anyone looking at the future of AI is focused on data. I mean, fundamentally, it's it's data models and compute. You know, that that's the things in play here. And I suppose labor resources. Um, I, I would uh, go back actually to Henry's reply because I think he was being more diplomatic than I would be. Um, but a lot of this year has been spent... Um, countering really a kind of radical semi-religious opinion that the main threat from AI is existential threat to future generations, you know, as in AI will kill us all. And there is little to no evidence that we are anywhere near this. You know, when you start to try, uh, as I did actually on Twitter, when you start to try and look for the proof of this, you generally find that you're referred to various quotes from various interviews by various of the leaders of the this movement as opposed to actual scientific rigorous evidence. Um, And I think all the panelists will know that current AI, including large models, is fundamentally just... um, you know it's it, it's a pattern matching uh next word predictive generator type technology it doesn't resemble human intelligence in any hmm. form as far as we know and therefore what we need to do i think is spend more time focusing on the current threats or the near future threats which have already been mentioned deep fakes bias in decision making environmental threats um propaganda uh, fake news, there are so many, and stop wasting our energy on made-up future risks. Okay. Yeah, that is interesting. If you are going to look, uh, Henry, at
1: the current situations, and we've mentioned deep fakes a number of times already, misinformation is a key issue that as cropping up time and time again. How concerning is misinformation in an era, era of social media, in an era where we're all glued to our phones, and in an era where we have already seen it have influence on major events such as elections?
0: Yeah, so I mean, I've been studying and researching deepfakes for six years, and every midterm or presidential election in the US, I will get asked, you know, is this going to be the one where we see Mm. a real impact? Deepfakes, you know, causing um, a state to to vote in a certain pattern, or even swing the entire result. Um, And until recently, you know, I've been somewhat dismissive based on the evidence we've been seeing, which is that there's been very little in the way of deepfake disinformation or interference, and a lot in the way of kind of cheap fake, that is kind of more crude media manipulation out of context images, slowed down voice audio and things like this um however this year has been pretty transformative in terms of both the capabilities that are now available in terms of things of uh, text to image uh synthetic voice generation and so on but also critically the democratization of those tools they are now incredibly accessible mm. and we've we're already seeing you know a lot of political deep fakes on social media on places like tiktok which are satirical often absurd but then we also have started to see some that are kind of creeping into that more kind of sinister disinformation sphere um and with the year ahead um holding i think 76 countries have elections next year about a quarter of the world's population i have no doubt that we will see some attempts to use deepfakes in these elections we've seen it already in places such as slovakia um where a uh, fake voice audio of the uh candidate who ended up losing went viral on telegram um again it's not clear how much of an impact that had but it certainly seems to have had some um but i guess there's a lot of assumptions going around that you know deep fakes are incredibly persuasive in a way that kind of text based fake news or disinformation is not and the research is really out on this at the moment we don't know fully how much more powerful these kind of ai powered disinformation tools are some initial research suggested there's a marginal improvement but I think it's right to be concerned, but at the moment we don't have that evidence base to say that, look, deepfakes have this capability to really have the impact even if they are deployed quite widely.
1: Okay. I mean, Ramesh, isn't part of the problem of the, that we're seeing already highlighted in the discussion is that there's so much we don't know. And the technology is moving so fast. Developers are doing stuff that we have no clue about. And there's very little regulation put in place so far to catch up with it.
2: I mean, you're absolutely right. I mean, as far as disinformation concerns... Um, As Henry alluded to, this is already a challenge on uh, major technology platforms, social media platforms. Certainly, we saw many concerns in previous elections uh, involving Meta slash Facebook. We see concerns involving X, as we've spoken about several times on Al Jazeera regarding. And this is partly because these platforms are not truly governed by the public right they're not truly governed by the demos at least in the context of elections or electoral issues let alone the concerns that your other guests mentioned which i very much agree with around the health of an economy where all of our own personal data and an internet that we all paid for is being basically monetized Mm. by corporate actors that have not really shown a lot of um sense of um you know kind of uh, allegiance to the public realm. So what I think the much more interesting and important question, rather than kind of going, you know, all gonzo on the next technology and then the next technology and the next technology is asking the big questions of how we wish to live on this planet. What should not be datafied? How do we truly ensure that democracy and a more equal economy governs and drives these technologies? So those social human questions are so much more important and so much more challenging in a way than just going writ large with technologies that are being totally dominated by private corporations that don't necessarily have much allegiance um, to third parties like states and so on, unless they're pushed to do so.
1: So, what, Rabesh, what do you think should not be dataized then?
2: It's a great question. So I think, first of all, I think, you know, many aspects of our own sort of personal lives, we should not necessarily, we should know, we should always have an uh, opt-out, of data of personal data be the default, but in many parts of the world, opt-in is the default, including in mm. the United States. I think we should be regulating data brokers, which you know again the European Union is doing a better job of. And we should have third-party audit of what data is being retained for how long. How these algorithms tend to drive more extremist content that is already rampant on all of these platforms. So those are issues that already exist, independent or connected to the emergence of generative. AI. AI systems like ChatGPT. And those are the kinds of issues we need to protect. We need to protect the integrity of all of us as citizens and ensure that there are guardrails so we actually have a more equitable, uh, fairer world. And Mm. I think technology can take us there, but we have to start with those values.
1: Lillian, do you already feel that you share more data than you're comfortable with?
3: Um, I'm not sure I do, but I want to sort of take issue and uh, represent, as it were, the European perspective, even though I'm in the UK, which very sadly is not part of the EU anymore. Um, Because, of course, you know, I I totally agree that what we're going through is a social revolution just as much as a technological revolution. And we should be looking at social solutions such as, for example, we might talk about universal basic income for creative laborers or other kinds of laborers, workers who might lose or have their jobs diminished by this technology. Mm. But primarily, I'm, I'm here as a lawyer, and I would say this is not the Wild West, and it's even less the Wild West at the end of a year of ChatGPT. In Europe, all the challenges that we just talked about uh, we're really at a cusp turning point. They are being addressed. Uh, this is not just something in the far future. This is most of the world, actually, except the US is addressing these challenges. Of course, many of these Gen AI providers, OpenAI, Google, etc., are based in the US. So that's an issue. But they do have to sell into the rest of the world. I mean, the EU is the world's second largest trading block. Uh, And therefore, that generally means, you know, unless they're small, out there, scammer-type enterprises, that they do want to accord with European law. And in Europe, Forever, really well for a very long time. Um, we've had something called Data Protection Law, General Data Protection Regulation, which I'm sure has been discussed on Al Jazeera, which does guarantee almost everything that was just mentioned. Right, transparency as to what data is being collected about you, restrictions on how it's reprocessed. I, I guess um, one. going to about- jump
1: in, Lilian, because I think one of the problems is hmm. many of us choose not to go through all of that list of stuff as being uh, used on us. And we choose not to opt out and we just don't, we miss it when we we log into an app. This is on to us. But if, but you know, I think what Ramesh was saying, is it not better to have the opt out as a default rather than uh, the opt in as a default? Well,
3: yes, it would be. But what I'm saying is that that's not really the be all and end all of the discussion, right? We've actually moved in Europe very much past the idea that you can consent to anything in situations where you have no choice, right? I mean, if you take Facebook, you know, young people don't wanna be on Facebook anymore, but take old people, right? For many uh, situations, everyone kind of has to be on Facebook, right? It's one of the ways you get jobs. It's one of the ways you make networks. It's one of the ways you keep your voluntary associations going. And you can say, yeah, we consent to giving you all our data to monetize it because we want to join Facebook. Well, Europe is beginning to say, in fact, is saying that's not valid. Right. Yeah. That's not real consent. And it is changing. And very shortly, really very shortly, within the next five years, probably that business model is going to be illegal in Europe. And what you know, the likes of Meta and so forth will do about it is right up for grabs right now right? Are they going to have to approach a different kind of advertising? Are they going to have to go to a subscription model? Are they going to do some combination of all of these things? So we're really moving past that point in Europe and a great deal of the rest of the world. That remains now a very American uh, perspective. Okay, Henry, the EU really is leading the
1: way, isn't it, in regulation. It's just recently passed the AI Act. What impact is that going to have, though, on the development of AI within Europe?
0: Well, I think Lillian's certainly right that the EU has huge influence over development around the world based on the uh, regulations it enforces within its own borders, I guess you could say. We saw that, for example, with Apple with the new iPhone moving to a USB-C. Um, port over the lightning port that they've used and that was something that the eu more or less forced into action but i must say i do feel that you know the the kind of the landscape around regulation of ai is a really interesting one because we're seeing Countries in particular kind of grappling with this dilemma between, well, do we kind of adopt what what some people would say is a pro-innovation approach, which is perhaps a little bit um, lighter on regulation to avoid what people in industry would refer to as kind of regulatory capture, you know, stifling innovation, whilst also taking seriously the risks to their society, to individuals' rights and so on. Um, and to me, it's at the moment, I think there's quite a few countries that are sort of trying to wait and see what happens. And the EU AI Act is a really interesting one. Um, because obviously that's not coming into force yet. It's not being actually, you know, deployed. Um, It looks like it won't be until probably the end of next year, if I I understand correctly. Um, And so, yeah, I think we have this really interesting dynamic, which is we live in a world now where a lot of this information and particularly software is freely available online in a lot of cases, particularly in the open source space, which is a huge debate around AI. And, um, you know, a lot of countries, I think, are trying to sort of kind of get that balance right. But a lot of countries, I think, are actually kind of trying to go more pro-innovation to attract investment, mm. to kind of cement their reputation as the leaders in this space. Um And I think the EU AI Act will be an interesting kind of first mark. It's worth saying as well, though, for example, though China has has put in place, even at the beginning of uh, this year, the Deep Synthesis Act, it's got some fairly broad sweeping AI uh, regulation in place already as well. So, it's not just the EU that's moved first on this. Mm, um, okay. I think, if I may just quickly, I think, you know, Ramesh raised some interesting points about kind of the societal impact and kind of the big questions around datification, what we do and don't want to be datafied. And for me, there are some other really interesting questions that emerge off the back of AI, which I think are really important, such as, for example, AI uh, romantic chatbots, virtual kind of partners and things like this. The film Her is increasingly becoming a reality the role of synthetic resurrection, bringing back deceased actors in Hollywood and so on. There's a lot of really kind of ethically ambiguous gray questions that make us feel uncomfortable. And we don't really know if that uncomfort or discomfort, sorry, is kind of an intuition of ethical um, you know, things going wrong or if it's just future shock. So I think next year we're gonna see quite a lot of these sort of strange applications being debated quite hotly in the context of, should this be legislated against? How do we kind of govern some of these slightly more strange and unsettling use cases?
1: Ramesh, do you agree with that? Do you think there's going to be quite a lot of odd things coming out in the next year, things that don't, don't, don't sit quite comfortably with us?
2: Right. I mean, I don't think there's any, any question that these oddities are... More and more um, a thing of the present and of the future. You know, my my friend and colleague Kevin Roos, uh, ha- was able to get ChatGPT to ask him to leave his wife in a well-known story. You know that came out a few months ago. Um, and I think the European Union has led the way with uh, interesting reforms on certain levels, though they have. There's been little in terms of uh, true algorithmic audit, um, and also Instagram, which is owned by Meta is a dominant platform used by younger people. So never think about the technology itself as much as the corporate governance of such, which different technologies are used by different demographics. I also think there's widespread concern around where the economy is heading, this datafied economy. I mean, we see large-scale youth unemployment in parts of Southern Europe. We have concerns around what type of innovation is actually pro-labor, is actually lifting young people up and creating a more equitable uh, data economy. And I think most importantly, the vast majority of people around the planet, though I appreciate the optimism of my colleagues, and the vast majority of people around the planet implicated by emerging technologies are in the global south, right? They're in South Mm. Asia, South America. There are some examples of privacy law or other types of legislation, but many of these are one-offs or piecemeals. So. Um, To sort of say that we're sort of heading in a sort of economically just, democratically you know focused uh, direction on a planetary level is a big myth. But I think that we can get there. I think the question is: is how do we wish our digital and datafied world to be, and what is the role of this type of artificial intelligence? Mind you, completely different than artificial intelligence systems I and others had worked on in the past, which were more interested in rationality, human cognition. But as we know as humans, there's many other types of intelligence, as was alluded to. We have emotional intelligence. in are non-human types of intelligence. And at times, we're just plain irrational as human beings. So this is not really about mimicking. It's about pat- emergent pattern recognition systems, um, as as your guests have pointed out.
1: Mm. Uh, one of the, the key areas that AI certainly can't access Lillian at the moment is creativity, compassion, love. Even if you do have romantic uh, chatbots, they don't quite hit the mark, do they? And AI cannot fully understand human language. What limits does that then bring? And will it one day maybe overcome those limits?
3: Well, I don't think I'm the one to ask if it can overcome those limits. I'm skeptical about it, but I'm not a computer scientist. Um, I think that the impact, what we're seeing, one of the earliest huge impacts is I mean, we've already talked a lot about misinformation. I think the other major impact right now is on the creative industries, where there yeah. is enormous worry and some despair. Um, I think, again, what we've had is a year of the Wild West, as it were, settling down, okay? So we started with, let's scrape everything on the internet, including everybody's books and everybody's drawings and all the rest of it, and stick them into our models and make money, okay? (laughs) That model is now... I think the zeitgeist is moving, as I said on Twitter, or X. Uh, I think that model is now becoming unsustainable. Um, we have a, a lot of litigation going on up there. Um, notably, in the last couple of days, the New York Times has launched a very, very solid uh, lawsuit against OpenAI. Um, concerning their use of its material, its stories, and pointing out some of them being reproduced almost entirely. We've seen that narrative already with images with Getty, who pointed again to Getty images being reconstructed complete with logo. Um, The really interesting thing about the New York Times suit is that it has resulted from a breakdown in licensing negotiations. In other words, OpenAI weren't offering New York Times enough money so, we are shifting, I think, from a paradigm, which again is very, uh, sorry, sorry to be so, so localist, but is, is very sort of American, um, to free use, fair use of anything that's out there, to an idea that this is just like anything else, like licensing music, like licensing um, your book to become a film play, that there has to be a negotiation on licensing with rights holders. Okay, um, Lily. I'm just going to jump team. in there because I can see Ramesh yes. shaking his head on that
1: point. And I'll come to you, Henry, in just a moment. Just let Ramesh quickly jump in.
2: No, no. I I, I, I very much appreciate the comments, and it's a good point about the New York Times. But I, I think that as remember, it's not just the data of the Wall Street Journal which ChatGPT was partly trained on, um, or the New York Times. You know that are that is at stake here, and of course, my friends at the Writers Guild of America were, had, had, had uh, major concerns about generative AI taking their own copyrighted content. But it's all of our data, right? It's all of us. And most importantly, it's not just the European Union that's emerging out of the Wild West. The internet is largely speaking, the Wild West still on corporate platforms around the planet. So for me, this is really a question of all of us, 99 percent of us around the planet, especially you think about people in, in, in the African continent that are increasingly colliding with these technologies and just ensuring that we have systems in place where these technological breakthroughs that are driven by and for private corporations using all of our personal data and an Internet we all pay for lift all of us up. And I don't okay. know if it's merely universal basic income. It could be another way of thinking about labor of the future, employment Ramesha. of the future, a more win-win. I'm Thank just going to
1: jump yeah. in there because we've only got a minute left. And Henry, I'm, I'm sorry, but I'm going to end with another binary question for you. Is the year ahead, 2024, is it, should it be a year of caution in the field of AI or a year of excitement?
0: Yeah, I, I'm, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to re- refuse your question and say, I think, again, it's both. I don't <laughs> okay. think you have to be one or the other. Um, I just very quickly also want to say you asked earlier, you know, AI is not creative, AI cannot uh, love. Um, on one level, maybe that's a philosophically interesting question. On a face value question, um, you know, it may not be creative, but it's replacing creative people's jobs. It may not be able to love, but it might be able to romance a new generation of young men. Mm. Um, and so whether it is or not doesn't necessarily change the impact it's having on the related spaces. So I think, you know, that, that's a that's a kind of an interesting philosophical question, but the impact is very real. And it will be going into next year, both in exciting and terrifying ways, no doubt.
1: <laughs> I love it. I love ending on a philosophical answer. Thanks very much to all of us for joining us today. To all of you for joining us today, Henry Ida. Lillian Edwards and Ramesh Srinivasan. This episode was produced by Dermot Fleming, Victoria Gatenby, Abla Clark, Gemma Harris, and Paul Taylor. Studio sound was by Eli Elhani. The program was edited by Mohammed Sobi, Negin Oliei, David Enders and Joda Freas. Be sure to subscribe to the Inside Story podcast to catch every episode. Thank you for listening and tune in on Sunday for our next edition.
2: Coming up on The Take, a look at the year ahead. We talk to Al Jazeera journalists around the world about what they expect to be covering in 2024. That's The Take by Al Jazeera. Find it wherever you get your
3: podcasts.